so we are continuing our focus on the concept of prayer. We started with our Fervent Prayer Week uh, three, three Sundays ago. And uh, last week I began an examination of the Lord's Prayer. And I want to continue that today. In fact, what I'd like to do is I'd like to review where we, where we, where we were at last week and then just kind of continue to move forward and we'll get through as, far, as much of this as we can. But one of the things that I want to make sure we draw our attentions to as we start this conversation is the concept of the Lord's Prayer and what it was intended to do. Because without this, it's really hard to fully understand the Lord's Prayer. Now, every one of us at some point has heard this. Every one of us probably at some point has recited this. But one of the things that is lost um, so often as we've continued to recite the Lord's Prayer over and over and over again is really what was being taught by Jesus Christ in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus Christ literally says um, that don't pray like those other people who do it with vain repetition for people to see them. But pray in this manner. Pray this way. One of the things that's ironic about um, the, the foundation of this, the, the, the truth of this, is, is how often the Lord's Prayer has become vain repetition. The type of thing we stand up and we recite it over and over and over and over and over again without really understanding the depths of what's being said there. And what Jesus was saying is, every time you pray, I want you to pray this way. I want you to pray in this manner. I want you to pray with, with, with this approach. How many of you guys knew that? How many of you, when you form the prayers that you pray, you pray this way, in this manner? It, you can't really do that if you don't really understand the manner in which Jesus Christ was trying to get us to understand prayer. And that's why when you step into this, you begin to see what, what, what Jesus is saying. Is He's saying this is the heart of the person who prays. This is the approach of the person who prays. This is how they approach their prayer life. And so we see this, we see this recorded in Matthew chapter 6, and that's where I want to take it from. And um, specifically, I want to take it from the King James Version. The reason why I want to do that is because as a kid, this is how I memorized it. And this is how I got to know it. And so I want to continue in that. And, and I think there's a beauty and I think there's insight that is revealed in the King James Version of this prayer. After this manner, Jesus, Jesus said, After this manner, therefore pray, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. How many of you knew it? How many of you guys have recited it over and over and over again? It is incredible because as we look at this um, passage here, as we look at what Jesus Christ said to us. Um, there is unbelievable depth when you take the time to really look at it and understand it the way I just described it. There's unbelievable depth when you step into this and you go, this is how I am supposed to position myself in my prayer. 
this is the way in which I'm supposed to have a prayer life. When you really understand that that's what Jesus Christ is laying out here, and then you look at the words that are spoken, it should transform not just the way you pray, but the posture you have before God. Not just the way you pray and the posture you have before God, but the way you understand your Christian faith. It's really interesting because it's five lines. It is, it is five lines, a few phrases. It's 60 words. But Jesus says, this is how you should now pray. So the starting point for us as we look at this needs to be, this is transformative. This is transformative in my faith. This is transformative in my prayer life. And so why is that? I believe that the first line of, of the prayer is one that is particularly um, transformative for Christian living. And the first line of this prayer, I think, should be the type of thing that, that challenges us in the way in which we've approached our Christian faith, I would, say, I would say probably in the last, I don't know, 50 years, and specifically as we see um, Christianity developed here in America over, the, over that time. Jesus Christ says, this is how you should pray. And he starts out with this declaration, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That opening line, that in and of itself should be so instructive, not just in the way we pray, but in the way in which we approach our faith. This prayer, this, this, this instruction from Jesus Christ begins by establishing God's place in the universe. And therefore then in our hearts and in our own minds. I would argue that one of the biggest problems we have with the state of the church in America today is that we've not embraced that opening line the way we're supposed to, in the way in which we approach Jesus, the way in which we approach God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What Jesus Christ is specifically trying to get us to understand is when we come before God, we need to understand who God is and who we are before God. We need to understand his place, his position, who he is before we ask for anything, before, before we can really understand a request before God. Our, God. our Father who art in heaven, who sits on the throne, who reigns supreme, hallowed, separated, sacred, holy is your name. I would argue one of the biggest problems that we have in the American, uh, American church today is the fact that we have lost sight of the fact of who we are before God and who God is above us. We come to God as though he is common. We come to God as though he's one of us. We come to God as though he is here to serve us. And so that we are here to serve him. This is one of the problems we have. This is one of the things that is manifested all the time in our prayer life. God, I want this. God, I need this. God, I want this. God, I need that. God, I want this. God, I want that. God, I need this. And the moment God doesn't give us what we want, we shake our fists at God and we say, I can't believe you're doing that. As if God is here to serve us. 
It's fascinating because one of the phrases we hear all the time, and, 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 and if you've been a Christian for any period of time, you hear this, and you hear people suffer, struggling in their faith because of this. You hear people rejecting their faith with this, with this declaration. I cannot serve a God who would allow X. I can't believe in a God who would let that happen, or this happen, or take this from me, or not give me that. That's a, that, is a, that is an apologetic that is, that is um, very unique to the last hundred years in church's history. Do you know that? That mindset is not something that was even broached for the most part hundreds of years ago. And it's because we, in, Amer- in the American church specifically, has a lost an understanding of who God is and who we are. Let me ask you just a very direct question. What does God owe man? Nothing. In fact, I would, um, I would caveat that with this declaration. He does owe us something. He owes us death. For the wages of sin is death. What have we earned with our sinfulness? Death. And what we understand as we look at this prayer is Jesus Christ said, this is how you should pray. The posture we have before God is he ultimately owes us nothing. And so therefore, all that we have is God's grace to us. There is a common, there's a common understanding that many of us have lost um, within, our, within a modern interpretation of Christianity. It is the general grace of God. Every one of us, as we draw breath, receives the general grace of God. Whether you are a Christian or not a Christian, God's grace is being revealed. The beauty of being a Christian is we have, we have, we have had our eyes opened to the grace of God to us so that we might worship Him and that we might adore Him and that we might know who it is we serve. God's grace is extended. So the starting point of Jesus Christ's instruction to us as we go to prayer is this understanding that he is God and we are not. As we come to this place of prayer, as we come to to request of our God, as we come to, to pray to our Father, we know who we are before him and we see and we embrace and we believe in his grace to us even before we put our requests down before him. And then he says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. It's, a, it's an interesting follow-up to the declaration we just made because it continues the posture that we should have before God, right? You are our heavenly Father. You are in heaven. You are on the throne. You reign. You are hallowed. And as I come to this prayer, acknowledging who you are and who I am before you, I want you to know that my prayer is, thy will be done. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. The the posture of the believer as we come before a God who has been gracious to us, a God who is holy, a God who is hallowed, is not, not my will, not what I want, 
but what you want. This is, a, this is a particularly important approach as it comes to prayer. And really this kind of works on two different levels. The first is that we, we are content in the will and the plan of God. We are essentially coming to request before God. We're coming to prayer before God. And we're saying, listen, I want you to know that ultimately I trust in you. Ultimately, ultimately it is your will I want, I, I, I want re- realized in my life. But secondly, what it does is it calls us to align ourselves, to align our passions, to align our will, to align our desires, to align our prayers with the will of God. God, I I want to know your will. I want to pray your will. I want to be in alignment with your will. It's really interesting because... Um, there's a particular passage in Scripture that teaches us about why our prayers do not get answered. And, and it's interesting because I think, I think it's, it's one that we've kind of like just read over and we haven't really embraced into our understanding of our prayer life. It's a passage that you find in James and he writes and he says, he, he's giving us an idea of why you don't have what you want. You do not have because you do not ask. So this is the prayer life, right? He's like, part of the problem is you guys don't press in and ask of the Father things. That's why you don't have. And then he says, you do what you ask. Now some of you do ask, but you do not receive. And he says, why? Because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. And then he makes this declaration. You adulterous people. And if you look in the Bible, I think it ends with an exclamation point. Right? You adulterous people. What's his declaration here? What is he saying? He's saying the reason why your prayers are not getting answered is because you are asking for things that are about you. And, 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 he, and, he, and he frames it for us properly. He frames it for us, right? Because he says, you adulterous people. He says, he says, here's the thing. You are desiring things outside the will of God. You are desiring things that you want instead of God, besides God, over God. He's basically saying you're cheating with the things of this world. You have a love for the things of this world greater than the love you have for your own, your own father. Greater than the love you have for God. He's talking here about an idolatry in the heart of Christians who say, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that, I want this, I want that. And when God doesn't give it to them, what do they say? Well, I don't want you anymore. I, I, I can't serve a God who would. I, I, I would never bow my knee to somebody who does. I, he didn't give me this. He took that away from me. I didn't get that. What, it, what is that confession in our hearts? The confession in our hearts is, I wanted that thing more than I wanted my father. I wanted that thing more than I wanted God. That's why you're adulterous. That's why it's idolatry. 
And I said this last week, and, and a lot of you weren't here for this, so, so I want to say it again, and I want to make sure that you understand this. If you don't get anything else out of this as it relates to the prayer, I want you to get this out of it. God will never be a partner in your idolatry. God will never be a partner in your idolatry. When you say, I want this more than anything else, and you start praying for something that you desire and you want above God, he's not going to give it to you. Pray all you want. Pray 24 hours a day. Pray beating your head against the wall. God will not give you that. He's going to cause you to commit idolatry and be adulterous. And I want you to understand something else as it relates to this. For many of us, a good thing can become an idolatrous thing. So easy for us to find things in our lives and we go, that's what I really want, that's what I really want. And it may seem like it's a good thing. But whenever we desire it above God, it is an idolatrous thing and God is not going to fulfill that. This is something that I learned. I learned this um, so vividly in the starting of Mercy Hill Church. I've been involved in church, I've been involved in ministry, I've been involved in church planning, and I had made ministry my idol. I worked like crazy, I worked like a dog to get a church up and running up in Minnesota that was growing and that was, that was, that was you know, successful, quote unquote. And I knew that I could do it, I knew it because I was good at it and I'd worked hard at it and I could figure it out and I read all the books and I knew all the seminars and I knew how to plant a church and God brought me back here to Milwaukee to start a church and I, and I had a timetable, and that church was going to be started in six months, and it would be, be up and running and going within a year. And it took me three years before God allowed me to start this church. And that is the honest to goodness truth. God closed the door after door after door after door after door. And, he, and, and, and ultimately what it came down to is God knew my heart. God knew how ministry had become an idol for me. And it wasn't until I finally got to the point that I laid it at his feet and I said, God, this is your church. If it ever opens or doesn't open, doesn't matter. If you want me selling houses for the rest of my life, I will do that. If it's a church of 50 people or 500 people or 5,000 people, this is your thing. And it wasn't until I laid that down before him and I allowed him to control it, to be in charge of my life, that he opened the door for me. For many of us, we have things in our lives that are idolatrous, and I'm going to tell you this, he will not open the door, he will not give you that thing until you lay it at his feet and you say, God, not my will, but yours. My Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. It can be a good thing. But if it's an idolatrous thing, he will not partner with you on it. For me, it was ministry. What, what could possibly be bad about that? I'm doing the work of God. I'm preaching his word. I'm getting more people into his church. But God said, you love that more than you love me. And you can pray and pray and work and work and work and pray and pray and work, but I will not give it to you because of my mercy to you. The greatest thing that we can ever discover is that the greatest thing we can ever capture is God. Nothing else. 
And so he, put, he puts us in this position, in this prayer, that we posture ourselves in a way in which we say, God, you are king, you are Lord, and it's your will that needs to be done. And the next line here is very much in alignment with that. We're saying, God, you reign, God, God, you rule, your will be done. And the declaration here is, give us this day our daily bread. This phrase really has a lot of truth uh, expressed that we, we, we sometimes struggle to see. Literally what he's saying here is, give us today what we need for this day. It is a prayer that can only follow when we have acknowledged the lordship of God and submitted ourselves to his will. Because then we can confidently live in, content, in contentment with daily provision. I know he's Lord. I know he reigns. I know his will is going to be done in my life. I know that his will for me is good. I know that he is my heavenly father. I know he wants to take care of me. I know that. And so therefore, I can enter into each day believing that he is going to continue to be faithful to me. It's not, about, it's not about what I have a week from now. It's not about what I have a month from now. It's not about what I have a year from now. I don't need to know that every little thing is taken care of for the next five years. I can pray the prayer and say, God, be my provider today. God, I trust you with today. Have you ever considered what follows Christ's teaching of the Lord's Prayer? As we just read here in Matthew chapter 6, have you ever considered what, what kind of follows his teaching? What follows what I just said, what follows what we just read, are things like this in verse 19. Do not lay up treasures here on earth, but lay up treasures in heaven. Or what he says in verse 25, where he says, do not be worried about what you will eat or drink or about your body or how the... Or um, how the chapter finishes, which, which is in verses 33 and 34. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Do you, read, do you, do you see where, where, where Jesus goes directly after he talks about the Lord's Prayer? Directly after he says that we should pray the prayer, give us this day what we need for this day. He, he then jumps out of it and he realizes, and, and it's fascinating because, because he, he, he essentially expounds on that central idea, doesn't he? He essentially pulls out that central idea where he's saying, give us this day our daily bread. In fact, he, he kind of repeats it later on where he says, don't worry about tomorrow. Just worry about today because today has enough trouble for itself, right? How many of you guys have ever realized that today has enough trouble for itself? Right? He, he pulls basically that out of that centerpiece, and he drops down, and he kind of expounds on it, and he says, listen, guys, don't worry about it. I will take care of you. We will look out for you. We will provide for you. Don't you know that, 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 I, that, I, that I've taken care of the birds of the air, that we've taken care of the, 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 the flowers of the fields? 
I'm going to take care of you. I, I kind of love it because, because it really kind of speaks to the heart of, of, of humanity. The anxiousness with which we live. The fear with which we live. I, I, we, we're all aware of the fact that, that, that we live in a culture, we live, uh, we live as people that have high level of anxiety, right? High level of stress. All of these, all of all of these, all of these uh, sicknesses that we have, all of the all of the mental illness that we have, we are just constantly in anxiety. We're constantly in stress. We're constantly worried about this and worried about that. And it's fascinating, isn't it? Because we've never lived. No one has ever lived in a society and a culture that has more at its fingertips. That can that has that has that has more resources than our society. The wealth of our culture and our society. The wealth. Uh, the, the resources in our culture and our society, it, it dwarfs every other time and place in history. And yet everybody is so anxious for tomorrow. Everybody is so stressed about tomorrow. And so it's really instructive to me how Jesus pulls out of the center of that prayer. He says, now this is how I want you guys praying. I want you having this posture. I want you having this heart as you pray. And in the middle of it, he's saying, He's saying, just pray for provision for today and don't worry about tomorrow. And it's kind of like he goes, that's the one I think they're really going to struggle with. So I want to expound on that a little bit more. Guys, the posture of our prayer is, God, you're my provider. Do you see how how that posture should, should, uh, should eradicate the, the anxiety we live with, the stress that we're carrying? Do you understand how our anxiety for tomorrow or next week or next month testifies to the lack of faith we have in our Heavenly Father who art in heaven, whose will we want manifested here on earth? Each one of us should be, put, be in a position where we say, God, I know who you are. I know your relationship to me. I know that you have the ability to see your will done in my life. And as a result of your will being done in my life, you're going to be my provider. So many of us live in a place in which the stress and the anxiety of tomorrow is doing us great damage. When you go to pray, pray with faith believing that God has tomorrow. That God's going to take care of your tomorrow. And understand that he is providing for you today. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. This is really an interesting line in here. This is an interesting um, uh, request. Um, he steps into this, he, 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 he asks us to pray in this way, and he says, forgive us our debts, but he establishes a request with a responsibility. He says, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. 
Jesus says the, the, the posture of this prayer, this, this prayer before God where we say, God, I want you to give to me something that is precious. I want you to give to me something that is important. I want you to give to me this, this, this um, alleviation of my debt to you. That, that I have sin, when I sin against you, I want you to forgive me. But Jesus says that posture needs to come from a heart of personal humility too. If God is going to respond to that, he needs to know that you've humbled yourself in a way in which you are able to forgive others. All throughout Scripture, what, is, what are we taught? We are to forgive others as, in the same manner, the same way, we have been forgiven. This is an idea that is taught over and over and over again. It is literally in this, in this prayer an acknowledgement of our forgiveness, our, our need to forgive others as He has forgiven us. This is really akin to, to Paul's admonition in Colossians chapter 3 where he says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And it's the same idea that we see in Ephesians chapter 4. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. We need to forgive others as God has forgiven us. Literally, in the same manner, we are, to be, we are forgiven as we forgive others. Jesus actually himself makes a declaration that if you don't forgive others, the Father in heaven will not forgive you. It's fascinating to me because as I get to this point, as I've followed this, this it, pray in this manner, it is fascinating to me the tone of this prayer. Doesn't it feel very different than the way we usually pray? There is, this, there is this laying ourselves down before God, understanding that we are partners with God, that we have a responsibility before God. And so we pray in this union with Him. Father, forgive me the way I forgive others. Hey, Lord, make me responsible to live out what you've called me to be, what you've called me to do, to be compassionate, be merciful and kind. God, as I receive graciously those who have sinned against me and confess that sin, asking for forgiveness, I will forgive them so that I may be forgiven by you. The, the, the important truth to draw out of this is do not demand forgiveness from God while withholding forgiveness from others. You have got to put yourself in a place in which you've humbled yourself before Him. That that, that, that call, that, that desire, that prayer of forgiveness in your heart is born out of such humility that you can forgive others who have wronged you. As I said, Jesus in this is giving us the posture of our hearts as we go to prayer. 
forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. The best way to understand this next line in the prayer is that this request, do not lead us into temptation, is not to suggest uh, God causes temptation, but it is a rhetorical way to ask for his protection from sin. Now, this is, not a, this is not a small idea in the center of this prayer. This is not a small idea as it relates to the posture that we have before God because it speaks to something really important. It speaks to the heart of the individual who understands the forgiveness they've been given and therefore doesn't want to sin against God. Spurgeon shows the connection between the call for forgiveness and the cry to be delivered from sin when he says, the man who is really forgiven is anxious not to offend again. The possession of justification leads to an anxious desire for sanctification. Forgive us our debts. That is justification. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That is sanctification. Do you see the relationship, the, the, the spiritual and moral and theological relationship between the call to be forgiven and the desire to live holy? When we have realized in our lives, when we realize in our lives that, 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 that we are so unworthy of that forgiveness, that, that God has poured himself out to us and, and allowed us through the work of Jesus Christ to be forgiven, when the impact of that forgiveness really hits you. This is something you've heard me talk about a lot. When, when we stand at the foot of the cross and we realize the price that was paid so our sins might be forgiven, it, it, it has to lead us to a posture of saying, Lord, I don't want to continue to sin against you. Keep me from that. This is... This is the posture of the individual who understood the price of their, their, their call for forgiveness. Do you understand what I'm saying? When, 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 we, when we say, God, forgive me of my sins, if we pray that just flippantly, if we pray that with, with, this, with this simple kind of like, God, just forgive me of my sins, without realizing the price that was paid so that we, our sins might be forgiven. Do you, do you understand what you're asking for when you say, forgive me of my sins? God, the only reason I can pray that, the only reason my sins can be forgiven is because your son, your perfect son, came to this earth and lived as a man and was beaten and bloodied and nailed to a cross. So I don't want to continue to sin. I don't want to continue to bring shame to the name of Jesus Christ who gave his life for me. So Lord, just keep me from sin. It is, it is, it is, the, it is the, the value of the price that was paid that lays upon us the weight of our own sin. To say, God, thank you for forgiving me. Keep me from sinning again. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power 
and the glory forever. And it's interesting because where does it return? It returns back to the Father. It returns back to God. It says, it says the object of this prayer is ultimately you. The object of this prayer is God. This posture, this position is so central to having a right view of Christian faith. It is, it is, um, uh, it is indispensable. And unfortunately what has happened for most of us in Christianity is we've tossed aside this idea. Do you understand your Christian faith isn't about you? Do you understand this whole thing isn't about you? It's not about you having comfort. It's not about you having pleasure. It's not about you having ease. It's about the glory of God being revealed in you, through you, by you. Your salvation is for God to show how gracious He is. And for some of you, that's a really huge declaration. Man, God is really gracious if he saved, I don't want to name names right now, but I could. Right, John? God saves us so that he can show his grace, how merciful he is. God, God heals us so he can show his mercy and his grace and his power revealed in us. The, 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 fi the finishing declaration of this prayer is, 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 is about His kingdom, is about His power, is about His glory forever and ever and ever. He's like, Lord, I am praying that You will be revealed. I'm praying that, you will, that Your provision will be shown. I'm praying that Your healing will come. I'm praying, I'm praying that Your glory... I'm praying all of these things because what I want more than anything else is Your kingdom established. Your power revealed. You glorified in me. Even when God heals, the healing isn't ultimately about you being more comfortable. The healing is about His glory being revealed. His power being shown. His mercy being evident. When you look at the totality of this prayer, the totality of this prayer is that our heart's postures, our mind's position, our spirit's desire is about God. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation. For thine is the kingdom and the glory and the power forevermore. Do you understand? Do you hear? Do you feel deeply in your spirit the posture we are to have when we come before God? You reign. You are God. I want you glorified in me. I want whatever takes place to be your, the, the center of your will. I want to be an instrument of your grace. I want to be an instrument of your mercy. I want, to be an I want you to use me however you want to use me. 
so that your glory may be revealed in all the things that I touch, in all the things that I say. Lord, I live to serve you. If there's anything that we can change about the posture we have towards prayer, it will be rooted, it should be rooted in the truth that when we go to pray, he doesn't become our servant at that point. We still stand before him as his servant, wanting his will to be done so his glory will be revealed. What's your posture in prayer? How much of your approach to prayer is about you and not him? God wants to, God wants to meet your needs. God, God wants to, to, to touch you. God, God desires to, to show his glory in you. The, the reality is God wanted Mercy Hill Church planted. God desired to see me used as an instrument of his grace. He wasn't withholding it because it was something he didn't want to see happen. But what he needed was that my heart and my mind and my spirit would be in alignment with what was right. His glory. His will. His wants. It's not that God doesn't want to meet our needs. God doesn't want to heal us. God doesn't want to be manifested in our lives. He does. But he wants us to love him more than those things. And if you don't pray prayers with this posture, it's no wonder your prayer life is impotent.